Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockridge-Munsee community. I'm Mark Dunlay. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we're going to begin with a live interview with Eleanor Stein, I believe, about the Palestinian issue. Then we hear testimony on the ceasefire resolution pending before the Albany Common Council. Later on, we hear from several RPI students working to raise awareness about the Dunn Construction and Debris Landfill in Rensselaer. After that, we get to experience Lisa Schomburg's field recording workshop from the banks of Hudson and Troy, and we finish with Marsha Lazarus talking to singer-songwriter Adele Hecko about being Jewish in America. But first, headlines. Russell Sage College is one of the schools rolling out the welcome mat for students from St. Rose looking for a place to continue their education. Both undergraduate and graduate students will be able to complete nursing education, criminal justice, or other similar majors. The college is also pointing out that its small class sizes, which is just like St. Rose, um, is an added benefit. Students could transfer for the spring semester if they wish. Um, Russell Sage says it will seek to provide a match for financial aid for the students as well. The Times Union reports that when Carolyn Stefanko stepped down as president of the College of St. Rose two years ago and Marsha White was named her successor um, to implement a drastic cost-cutting program, the college paid Stefanko nearly $1.5 million as a golden parachute. Some blame the expansion program launched by Stefano, including property purchases, as a major factor in the school's closing. The plan for White, a longtime member of the school's board, was to make $14 million in cuts to both academic and administrative costs, resulting in elimination of more than 40 faculty positions and more than 50 staff jobs. A total of 25 academic programs were cut. St. Rose is far from the only school facing problems. A second SUNY school announced cuts due to drop in enrollment. SUNY Fredonia will cut 13 programs in an effort to right size after years of declining enrollment and a $10 million deficit. SUNY Potsdam has also announced cuts a few months ago. The Daily Gazette reports that a week after Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy vetoed the city council's uh, 2024 budget adopted three weeks late, the council will hold a veto override vote during a special budget meeting Thursday night. City Council President Marianne Porterfield said there has been progress in the ongoing budget negotiations. McCarthy, however, says he expects his veto to stand since the council would need one more vote in addition to the initial 4-3 margin. Porterfield is proposing as an amendment to spend $1 million of federal COVID relief funds rather than raising fees for the water department. The Gazette also reports that Schenectady City Mission will expand its downtown ambassador program with a new satellite office on J Street opened in next spring. The program brings formerly homeless individuals back into the workforce as part of an initiative that greets downtown visitors and provides assistance to those in need. The program started in 2009 and currently employs a dozen ambassadors. And finally, 
Plug Power, the local green energy firm that has never made a profit in 25 years despite always being talented as the next big thing, is raising concerns about new rules by the Biden administration to qualify for hydrogen tax credits. The new rules would require that green hydrogen made with electrolyzers using water would have to be connected to new sources of clean energy, new wind or solar farms, for instance, to qualify for the tax credit. That would not allow, for instance, a green hydrogen plant to be powered by existing hydroelectric resources and still claim the tax credit. That's it for the headlines. Now, on Wednesday night, of course, at 7, we're going to be having uh, Chris Hedges at the sanctuary speaking about the Palestinian session. But I was able to convince uh, one of our attendees and board member here at the uh, sanctuary, uh, Eleanor Stein, to uh, come in and share some thoughts about some of the things Mm -hmm. she's working on with Palestine. And uh, our First Amendment rights to boycott is under attack. She's uh, handing out some postcards. So, Eleanor, what are you up to? Well, I'm here tonight to hear Chris Hedges. And you know, I tried to hear the speaker, uh, Miko Paled, at the Bethlehem Library last night. I couldn't get in. And uh, the reason I couldn't get in is that uh, a pro-Zionist uh, faction of the local Jewish community and others had uh, expressed their disagreement with him spe- speaking and tried to convince the library management to close out the meeting before it happened on Monday night. And the, so the meeting was really very um, contentious, and there were people from all points of view, uh, inside and outside, and tempers were running high. And I want to give credit to the sanctuary for providing a place for Chris Hedges to be heard. He's a well-known reporter, former New York Times award-winning journalist, who's been a, 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 um, an advocate for Palestinian rights for many, many years, and, and speaks very... Uh, in a well-informed and poignant manner about genocide against the Palestinian people. Now, now the speaker last night, uh, actually, I believe his grandfather signed a Declaration of Independence for Israel. Uh, His father was a general during, um, I guess, the old uh, Seven-Day War uh, and resigned his position because of uh, concerns that some war crimes were not being investigated uh, by Israel. Uh, And, in fact, the speaker himself like most, I guess, Israelis did serve in the Israeli military. Um, and it was a pretty nasty meeting, apparently, Monday night. And to their credit, the Bethlehem board did stand up. Now, you're out there in the hallway. You know, what, what was people's reactions to his talk last night? Uh, you couldn't really tell from outside. You couldn't hear, and, and I left before it was over. But I will tell you, um, it reminded me of something... I remember very vividly, and I'm old enough to remember this. Uh, in April 1967, Martin Luther King made a decision to come forward and make a speech against the Vietnam War for the first time. And that was down at uh, Riverside Church? At Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967, exactly one year before he was assassinated to the day. And the reason he was at Riverside Church is that he had tried to get a venue to make that speech and had been refused and barred from five different venues. And finally, Riverside Church stepped up and said, we will be your sanctuary. And so this morning, I pulled out his speech to read it. And I just want to mention 
This is the speech famous for the line, uh, time comes when silence is betrayal. And he's talking in relation to the Vietnam War. And he catalogs, uh, catalogs the atrocities that the U.S. military is responsible for in Vietnam and the, and the terrible um, uh, effects on U.S. military personnel of serving in Vietnam and being forced to, uh, you know, to do, you know, kill in the, end, in the end, almost two million people, Vietnamese people were killed in that war. And he said um, he had just been spending a lot of time uh, preaching to people in, in Harlem and other black communities and saying, uh, preaching nonviolence to young, angry young black people. And he says in this speech, I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghetto without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. And, you know, that's, I'm standing up uh, for Palestinian rights for a couple of reasons. One is, um, uh, as, a, as a Jew, I believe that, uh, that uh, Zionism is you know, carrying out uh, apartheid strategies. I am opponent of the Israeli government and of its policies and have been for years. Um, and uh, even though I think that uh, both sides have been, have violated the laws of war, we're in a situation that is so disproportionate with 1,200 Israelis have been killed in the events of October 7th, and the numbers of Palestinian deaths are now 15, 16,000. And some of the speakers at the library said, uh, well, that's just a Hamas number. How do you? Why do you believe that? But nobody has ever uh, challenged that number except in that kind of vague way. So, I think it is our. Uh, it is uh, the time has come when silence is betrayal, and I'm very happy to say that there's been a tremendous uprising of people around the United States, students, all you know, people of every age, in every town, every part of the country, and all over the world, coming out by the tens of thousands and more to oppose uh, the Israeli attack on Gaza and to call for a ceasefire. And I think we're also calling for an end to the financing by our government of the, of the military in Israel. And I think those two things have to go hand in hand, and I think that's really our obligation. And these days remind me of our days in the Vietnam years. Right. Well, I remember when I ran for Congress um, back in 1982, I uh, participated in a protest against the Israeli invasion of um, of Lebanon, a and the blowback was incredibly intense. Um, and you know, today there is so much more support, especially among young people, but also a lot of groups like Jews, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, about the Palestinians. But you don't get the sense that our elected officials, from Governor Hochul to the President Biden, have have grasp that they need to take a more even-handed approach. How do we how do we move both parties on this issue? I think that's a great question and I think that's what our obligation is to move our own government and I think both Governor Hochul and the Biden administration have been incredibly tone-deaf and really probably not even realizing what their actions have meant in terms of our isolation globally. The United States, some Western European countries had that's about it, have been supporting Israel, you know, unqualifiedly. And uh, the rest of the world is really standing against us and looking at us, you know, with dismay. Right. Well, I was actually surprised to read uh, in the Washington Post, apparently several hundred uh, Department of State officials, uh, and they're allowed to do this, 
uh, have actually came out in opposition to what the Biden administration was doing in Israel, saying you are destroying our reputation in the rest of the world, and you claim you're arguing behind the scenes for a more even-handed approach, but that's not what you're doing uh, publicly. But you were handing out some, in about two minutes we have left, our First Amendment right to boycott is under attack, the right to boycott, which is a five-minute video, um, bit.ly slash right to boycott. What's that about? Well, um, you know, boycotting Israeli products, um, divesting investments in Israeli companies, and sanctioning the state of Israel for the work that for its uh, genocidal politics has been a longtime movement in this country and it's had quite a lot of success, especially on college campuses. But there have been a spate of states who have passed uh, very draconian laws uh, saying that uh, boycotting Israel is not legal and that any entity or anyone who works for an entity that takes that position uh, cannot receive state, state funding in any form. So, Well, New York was considering that. New York was considering it. New York legislature uh, fortunately, has never approved a measure like that. But Governor Cuomo did issue an executive order to that effect, and Governor Hochul has adopted that executive order. And that's one of the things that we're going to be, you know, raising our voices about right now. I'll never forget the picture of her literally wrapping herself in an, an Israeli flag uh, right after October 7th. And while I appreciate the pain and the, the fear and the fearing feelings, uh, you know, of, 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 of empathy, for the victims of the events of October 7th, supporting the Israeli government without qualification and arming them with uh, bunker busters and massive amounts of armaments is really not conduct that we can tolerate in our government. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've been talking with Eleanor Stein, one of the board members here at the Media Sanctuary. Up next for a peace bucket, we hear from a number of residents who spoke on December 4th in favor of a resolution pending before the Albany Council to call for immediate ceasefire to Gaza and Israel. In Gaza and Israel. On Monday, December 4th, during a public comment period at the Albany Common Council meeting, a number of residents spoke in favor of a resolution pending before the council calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and Israel. The council will vote on the resolution at a following meeting. We hear from four speakers former City Council member Barbara Smith, two members of Jewish Voice for Peace, Mark Mishler, and Eva Agreev and Ms. Jamel, an immigrant from India. My name is Barbara Smith. I'm here to speak this evening about the upcoming resolution for a ceasefire in Israel and Gaza. There are times in history when people have to take a stand. This is one of those times. Uh, the Albany Common Council has an opportunity to uh, speak out and also to speak to the federal government that has been sending billions of dollars of funding to Israel for decades. And now we see the extreme and egregious results of that kind of policy. There are many common consuls who have passed such resolutions. Among them are Akron, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, Ypsilanti, Michigan, uh, Detroit, Michigan, Providence, Rhode Island, Seattle, Washington, Hamtramck, Michigan, Dearborn, Michigan, Richmond, California, Wilmington, Delaware, and just last week, Oakland, California. As I said, this is a time for us to speak out, and uh, because we are opposed to uh, any kind of 
uh, human uh, destruction, particularly the destruction of human life, it is our time to speak out. Uh, we've had these opportunities in the past in history, and sometimes we've failed, and sometimes we have succeeded in taking the right stance. The Holocaust, the war in Vietnam, apartheid in South Africa. What is, it, what is happening in Gaza right now is one of those times. This is not an anti-Semitic stance. I just thought I would share with you a book. The book is called Yours in Struggle, Three Feminist Perspectives on Anti-Semitism and Racism. I'm a co-author. So in 1984, I was doing what many people still will not do, which is to speak out about anti-Semitism, but I also, of course, speak out about Islamophobia and every other kind of oppression. Good evening, members of the council. My name is Mark Mishler. To speak in favor of the upcoming resolution being submitted by council members Romero and Adams uh, in regard to calling for a ceasefire. I'm Jewish. All of my grandparents were born in Eastern Europe and emigrated here in the first decade of the 20th century. Two were from the city of Kishnev in Moldova, the site of one of the most infamous, violent anti-Semitic pogroms in the early 20th century. It is my family's community and my family's multiple cultures, the Yiddish-speaking culture of the shtetls and the more intellectual and working-class activist-oriented Jewish culture of the larger cities that the Nazis destroyed or sought to destroy in their genocide in World War II. The lessons from my Jewish heritage, which I was taught and by which I have tried to live my life, are it is because we come from a history of repression, of being considered outsiders, of being subjected to hateful violence and genocide, that we are compelled to stand up for justice, not just for Jews, but for all who have experienced or are experiencing oppression. I learned early that this history requires me as a Jew and as a human being to join with others in solidarity, to work to prevent genocide, war, racial, gender, ethnic, or religious-based hatred, and to fight for the human rights and liberation of all people. Um, my name is Ava Agree. I come on behalf of myself as a member of Albany's Jewish community and on behalf of Albany's chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace to speak in favor of the upcoming resolution for a bilateral ceasefire. I felt compelled to speak to you today because of my Judaism. I am the granddaughter of survivors of the Holocaust um, on my father's side and on my mother's side. I am the descendant of Jews who were forced out of their homes in what is now Ukraine and Belarus by violent anti-Semitism. Throughout the history of Zionist movements, throughout the history of the state of Israel, Jewish people have hotly contested the role of Israel as a state in Jewish community and the politics of the Israeli government. Uh, that is abundantly clear if you have followed the news in recent months of the massive outpouring of protest amongst Israeli Jews in Israel contesting the actions of their government. And so I want to start my comments by reiterating that critique of what is happening right now in Gaza 
should not be misinterpreted as anti-Semitism. Critique is probably the most Jewish thing I can think of. And so I hope and I trust that members of this body will not silence those voices asking for an end in that violence. I know that all of you, as many in this room, have been bombarded with troubling images over the last two months. And yes, I would acknowledge and condemn what happened on October 7th. Um, but as we all know, those images, that violence, has not ceased since October 7th. Uh, as was recently noticed, noted, the UN now reports that over 80% of Palestinians have been bombed out of their homes. Thousands upon thousands of children have been killed. Hospitals have been targeted came here today to say this is not representative of my Judaism. It is not representative of our values in the city of Albany of promoting peace, promoting inclusivity, and promoting justice and human rights. Good evening. My name is Mahak Jamil. I'm here tonight to tell you about my own lived experience. I'm not Palestinian, but I am the daughter of parents who lived through the partition of India in 1947 the largest forced human migration in history with over 15 million displaced and upwards of 1 million killed. Much has been documented about that genocide, but the human impact can never fully be captured in history books. I carry the weight of that intergenerational trauma with me every day. I know and deeply feel what it is like to have the sense of displacement embedded in your psyche. It is one thing to read about occupation and another to live it. I was last in Palestine 10 years ago in 2013. I can never forget the feeling of being held at military checkpoints, standing behind metal gates for extended periods of time while my white colleagues breezed through. I can never forget the feeling of being denied access to various sites throughout the West Bank, while again my colleagues were ushered in without question, without hesitation. I carry the weight of that experience every day with me as well. The weight of my responsibility as a privileged, blue passport-toting American to right the wrongs that have brutalized innocent Palestinians well before the gruesome last eight weeks. Gaza is being suffocated. This is indisputable. I don't need to rattle off more stats to you. We know we are living through what every accredited international human rights organization has acknowledged as a genocide, full stop. I wish so badly that term wasn't accurate here, that I was using inflammatory hyperbolic language for dramatic effect but the reality is we have surpassed original Nakba numbers with some 20,000 Palestinians killed since October. The figures are absolutely astounding. As we have all watched in horror at the atrocities unfolding in Gaza, there has been more salt poured on our wounds. Our representatives have been painfully silent, the support for local Muslim and Palestinian communities shockingly absent. I am not Palestinian, but my Pakistani-American ancestry has taught me we are destroying entire generations here, physically, metaphysically in Palestine and beyond. I'm not Palestinian, but you don't need to be Palestinian to be appalled as the world makes excuses for acts so blatantly inexcusable as it justifies this catastrophe of historic proportions. You do not need to be Palestinian to know that the oppressor cannot also be the victim. You don't need to be Palestinian to know Israel has far exceeded any conceivable definition of self-defense with its indiscriminate killing and the collective punishment it has unleashed on citizens of the Gaza Strip. You don't need to be Palestinian to feel the anguish of a people not given the, the right to up, live. Man. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk.
Magazine. We do our peace segment uh, every Wednesday night when we first uh, broadcast it. You can go to uh, mediasanctuary.org to find our past um, peace segments. Obviously, in recent weeks, we have been covering the Palestinian issue quite a bit. Uh, For those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. Um, You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the beautiful Sanctuary of Independent Media in Troy, New York, right before uh, the 7 o'clock talk by Chris Hedges about the Palestinian issue. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, or that special someone you know at the bus stop. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. In our next segment, which is from Lunar Sturgis, we hear from several RPI students working to raise awareness about the Dunn construction and demolition debris landfill in the city of Rensselaer. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Luna Sturgis, and joining me here today is... Alyssa Fici. Tia Pignetti. Juliana Demers. Sarah Min. We are a group of students at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute working to further raise awareness for the situation unfolding at the Dunn landfill in Rensselaer. We recognize that there has been a good amount of coverage on the topic over the past few years, and we wanted to put out a recap and in-depth look at some of the most recent data regarding the subject. Before we begin, I want to put out a big thanks to everyone at the Sanctuary for Independent Media for working alongside us, as well as their Air Justice Lab for providing us with the data necessary to make our analysis. And last but not least, thank you to our interview participants for providing us with their experiences on this topic. Without further ado, here's Alyssa and Tia with a quick summary. The Dunn Landfill is a construction and demolition debris landfill, which means the majority of the materials in the landfill are from construction, demolition, and renovation. The landfill is 99 acres and is the largest C&D debris landfill in New York, and it accepts waste from eight different states. It's located in the city of Rensselaer and the town of North Greenbush, near residential neighborhoods in both areas. Most notably, the landfill is approximately 200 feet from Rensselaer schools, which is a source of concern for many families. It is run by a multi-billion dollar company called Waste Connections that has landfills all over the country. Many of the citizens of the city of Rensselaer strongly disapprove of the landfill because of its effects on their community. The nearby residents have been subjected to many unpleasant smells, including a rotten egg odor from hydrogen sulfide. In addition, the landfill generates a lot of dust, which envelops the nearby schools and homes. This has led to concerns in the area because long-term exposure to poor air quality is detrimental to cardiovascular health. Heavy truck traffic also creates issues because every morning, dozens of tractor trailers coming from seven different states through the residential neighborhoods of Rensselaer. This has put strain on the city's infrastructure, increased traffic in the morning, and has created a lot of noise. The Rensselaer schools were built in 2007 and the landfill was approved in 2012 and opened in 2015. Since then, the DEC has prohibited building landfills within 1,000 feet of schools. This is a recognition that the effects of the landfill on the surrounding area can be harmful, especially to children. 
There is a general consensus between the people of Rensselaer and the DEC that the initial permit review process was rushed. However, now that the landfill is in place, it is much harder to shut down. In general, the landfill generates a significant amount of revenue for the city, but city officials are in favor of shutting it down because of its impact on Rensselaer. In 2019, the DEC forced the Dunn landfill to make some changes to its procedures in order to reduce the smell. Since then, the smell has been reported to be better, but it's nowhere close to being eliminated. This year, the, per the landfill's permit expired, but while it undergoes the permit renewal process, the DEC is allowing it to continue operating. However, the permit process can take years, so many activist organizations are ca calling for a cease of operations while the DEC makes its decision. Thank you for the quick rundown, and now that we're all caught up on the situation, we wanted to get some local points of view on the impact of the landfill. Many Rensselaer residents living near the Dunn landfill, including myself and my family, have experienced poor air quality, increased traffic, noise, and pollution from trucks, and most noticeably, the foul, rotten egg stench coming from the landfill. Many say that their quality of life has been diminished due to the landfill, including my own mother, Julie Demers, who had this to say about the landfill's impact. Well, I live about less than a mile um, as the crow flies from the landfill. Um, and in the winter, it's really not much of an effect. But any of the warm months, unexpectedly, you can just suddenly get this horrible, horrible smell day or night, um, kind of a sewery, garbagey smell, um, enough that you don't even want to be outside. When it's at its worst, you don't even want to sit on the patio or anything. It's just a t very overpowering, overwhelming smell. Um, I like to sleep with my windows open in the warm months. And it, when it's the worst, you can't. You have to close the windows. I've actually had the windows open at night and woken up. It'll wake me up. My throat will be burning. Um, I'll be congested. My sinuses will burn. And um, the smell is just so bad. You have to close the windows and, and keep the house shut up. Um, so that's that's kind of the worst of it. And it's completely unpredictable. It just depends. I, I assume it depends on the atmospheric conditions each day to day in which way the wind is blowing. Um, it's not necessarily worse or better on humid or hot days. It just kind of comes and goes at random. So that almost makes it worse. It's unpredictable. But it's definitely very interfering. I mean, you can't even be outside. So it, it definitely affects your quality of life. Thank you to Ms. Demers and Juliana for their insight, and we will now move on to our data analysis. We looked at the purple air air monitors around the city of Rensselaer to track how the landfill affected the air quality. Looking through the data overall through the year, we can see that the air quality monitor closest to the landfill provided by the Air Justice Lab, their monitor number six, which is much farther, th farther than the schools are from the landfill, has a higher average AQI than the other two, um, AQI being the air quality index. There were some outliers in the data due to the wildfires that occurred this past summer in Canada. However, the summer in general, because of the increased heat and humidity, exacerbates issues such as smell and bacteria growth. With the temperature of the globe steadily increasing, we can expect that this issue will only continue to get worse over time. Overall, the average AQI throughout the entire year has near the moderate zone, edging out of the healthy zone. We also need to keep in mind that these filters we were looking at only measured 
PM2.5 particles and did not take into account other pollutants such as hydrogen sulfide. Thank you for the data analysis, and with that, we've put out all of our data. We 100% understand that there's a lot of nuance to this issue, but we hope that by continuing to bring awareness to this, we can encourage legislators to make the first step of closing down the landfill. Thank you for listening in, and one last big thanks to everyone involved in this project. And that was uh, Luna Sturges, and uh, they were talking with several RPI students who are working to raise awareness about the Dunn Landfill. Uh, we've done quite a few segments, so you can go to mediasanctuary.org, just type in uh, Dunn Landfill, and quite a few segments will pop up. Up next, last Sunday, Lisa Schonberg gave a field recording workshop at the sanctuary that included a trip into North Troy to experience this location through sound with the technology of special microphones. Sina Basilahiki was there to record the experience. It's got a hydrophone in the water, picking up the rain and the sound of the water moving. Um, Sounds like kind of glass-ish. And then it's got the geophone in the gravel right by the water, picking up the low end of the waves coming in. And then it's got a airborne microphone on the rock, just picking up the sound through the air here. And then it's got um, a contact mic right near the edge of the water, kind of underneath a rock, picking up also the vibration of the water coming in. So we're here on the Hudson River by the Ingalls Boat Launch. And we're here with artist and musician Lisa Schonberg doing a workshop on field recording and picking up the sounds. Yeah, I'm picking up the sound of the Hudson through the water and then the gravel through four different kinds of microphones. So we're picking up like the more obvious sound and the cryptic hidden sounds at once at the same time. Yeah. All right. We're going to witness as Allie Wist has a first listen on the composition coming through all the microphones. So I'm listening to all of the microphones at once? Yeah. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Like, there's things I, I recognize as water, and then there's the rain is so much more intense than, like, we sense it. And there's all these bassy sounds, which... It could be the waves coming in on the geophone, but it also could be, well, I guess you'd be able to tell if it's the waves or if it's our footsteps, because the footsteps, you might hear that. Yeah. The weight of us stepping, you can hear it so intensely. And it's just like, I feel like I can hear all the rocks. Yeah. Ah. The water is like playing the rocks. Yeah. Oh, it's really calming. I could listen to this for a long time. And then when you look at it, you're like, oh, it's a bunch of trashy concrete and bricks. But then when you listen to it, it's really nice. Right, so you were explaining how the microphones 
color, like the the medium that that the that the sound is going through colors the sound. So if it's on a rock, our voices and our footsteps are are colored by that material, same as the water or wood surfaces. Yeah. So like. Especially with the contact microphones, so the hydrophone, geophone basically, and the contact microphone um, are picking up sound, vibratory sound through surfaces. So the hydrophone being the water, so it's picking up the sound as it is filtered by, as it is affected by that space. And even the airborne mic is picking up the sound through a filter. The filter is the space that we're in, so it's like the acoustics of the space that's Near, near these really big trees and next to the water in this rainy environment. So there's clouds, it's all affecting the sound. Um, and then the contact mic's picking it up in that sort of environment of these like little crevices of the rock. So through those, that space in those surfaces. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the sound reaches whatever it's going to, the microphone or our ears, through things, whether those are air or, sur- or substrate. You can tell people it's like soothing nature sounds and then be like, psych, it's a trashy riverfront on the Hudson. <laughs> but it's really, both. what's the difference? It's both. It's both. That's also oh, nature that's so, sounds. So, so, so would it be less interesting if we had been doing this workshop on a not rainy day, on a sunny day? Yeah, it's really fascinating with the rain and hearing it fall on the water. Yeah. So, Ali, you mentioned that the sounds are misguiding the listener from what the, the truth of the uh, trash-filled uh, shore of the Hudson, but maybe it's the opposite. Maybe the sound is helping you to see the truth, the, of, the truth of, of what this is and what it was and what it might become again. Do you feel like the listening through those headphones has changed your perspective of where we're standing? Yeah, I mean, to be honest... At this point, why is this beachfront covered in bricks in Troy not nature? And we're going to have more and more of these, I feel like, ruins that are also nature in their own way. So, yeah, it's kind of, at first it's surprising that it's such a soothing nature sound. And then it's like, well, of course it is. And, yeah, if you think of the history of a riverfront like this and also the possible long future like Lisa's interested in, um, the difference between like river pebbles and bricks over a long enough span of time doesn't matter. And maybe this is, yeah, maybe the sounds actually just evincing that like, hmm, this is nature too. <laughs> and you're like, without the visual to color it or stereotype you like towards a negative opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. It did change my opinion of it, I think. <laughs> yeah. You sliding around on the gravel is like, whoa. I feel like I'm at a... (laughs) It's actually like crackling. It can't even handle the intensity of you just like walking on the gravel. (laughs) You hear that? Yes. Yeah, I feel like I'm at a sound check for like a house music <laughs> concert. <Berlin. laughs> so uh, as we're cleaning up, like what what do you want listener what do you want listeners to take away from experiencing um, the world in this way? I'd say what 
I want people to take away from this is like um, that there's so much going around going on around us sonically um, that we can't hear and like there's I feel like the first step is listening to what you can hear at your ears and like taking the time to do that and having the time that privilege to do it but then the next thing is like there's so much if you dig further that you can't hear and by like trying to listen to that part that we can't hear with the technology that we're lucky to have here then you can maybe consider how non-humans might experience the world like such as the non-humans living in this water or the non-humans living in this rubbly anthropogenic environment here yeah. i felt like earth when we heard the geophone sound mm-hmm. i felt like oh this is how earth is listening mm-hmm. so it definitely did that to me what you described oh well i was telling Sina earlier that like it that idea of that it sounds like nature sounds and that I kind of like that without the visual cue of like human objects and human waste like why doesn't this qualify as a nature scape or a landscape um but yeah it's interesting to me I, I don't know it always changes my perspective on a space when I hear mm-hmm. your microphones like pretty dramatically even though I've experienced it before it's kind of amazing how it's still every time you're like holy heck that's that's what this place feels and sounds like, that depth of it. Yeah. Mm. And the project that this is part of um, speaks to old growth, and it's coming from the West Coast where old growth is has a really um, well-recognized image for people, meaning like forests full of really old trees that's been around for 500 years, 1,000 years. But for this project and thinking of old growth with regard to any place, no matter the amount of human presence or absence, and but thinking forward with the old growth. So like, what would this place here, looking forward, what will the old growth be? What will this be as old growth in the 200 years from now, 300 years from now? And considering that, like Ali's saying, as not just um, a non-human thing, but the humans being part of it, and all of us, our nature, together in this place, and it's in the middle of the city, you know, and it's everybody's to, to experience. And the microphones, I think, are getting wet. This is the, this is estuarine. And the water's coming in. <laughs> Protect the microphones. This is Sina Bazila Hickey reporting from Lisa Schonberg's field recording workshop at Ingalls Avenue Boat Launch in Troy. Lisa Schonberg will be presenting a body of four new specialized, specialized sound works that are the culmination of old growth playback at the sanctuary on December 16th. See our event page at mediasanctuary.org to learn more. And a couple of breaking headlines. Governor Hochul says that the Belmont Stakes, which is the third leg of the Triple Crown, will this year be held at Saratoga Racecourse this year being 2004, so that they can allow for the uninterrupted construction of a new and reimagined Belmont Park. And for our pet lovers out there, um, a blaze at a single-family home at 31st Street in Albany heavily damaged the three-story building. But firefighters, um, besides no one being injured, were able to rescue six dogs, and three cats. For our last segment, 
In part two, Marsha Lazarus talks with singer-songwriter and klezmer musician Ada Hecko uh, about what it means and doesn't mean to be Jewish in America. It's hard. It's like, it's complicated being Jewish in America. <laughs> so to give, give people a chance to, to say like, we're we're complicated we make mistakes the world is a mess and we can find joy in community together beautiful i'm sitting here with singer songwriter and klezmer musician ada hicko originally from the capital region it's interesting how you say being jewish is complicated and sometimes i describe it as almost a shroud of mystery surrounding what it means to be Jewish. It's not a nationality like being French or British or Puerto Rican. You know, many people think of Jews as synonymous with Israel, but many, many more Jews live outside of Israel. It's not a race. It is a religion, but there are many people I know who identify as being Jewish, but are not at all religious, do not, you know, follow any of the traditions. Yeah, I, I see Judaism as primarily a culture. That's how I mostly interact with it. And I think there are, there are shared stories and symbols and traditions, but it's also totally diverse. People are, people are coming at it with all sorts of different, different beliefs and, um, and different interests and desires. And I think there's not so much you can say about the Jews as a <laughs> like the idea of the Jews is is kind of ridiculous because like any other group there's all sorts of different things going on I think Jews are primarily bound together by social connections like my partner calls it Jews knowing Jews like <laughs> some people call it Jewish geography like people are even if they aren't um, born into Judaism like they know somebody at the temple who knows somebody who knows somebody um, so I think that's a big, a big part of being Jewish is, is finding community. So there's great diversity within the Yiddish culture and exactly. is, is what you're saying. And, and certainly generationally, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm thinking of my grandparents who came from Europe and had very different experiences than those of us who were born in America. And then my experiences were very different than folks from your generation, Ada. Would you say there's a difference generationally between those who are drawn to and recognize and value, you know, Jewish or Yiddish culture and are very comfortable with the Jewish diaspora versus those who feel it's so important for Jews to have a homeland, a Jewish state? Yeah, I think that I think that's true. And I also want to say that there's, again, there's variety in every in every group. So a lot of my friends and collaborators during this, this time of, of war, there have been a lot of klezmer musicians who've explicitly done organized music. Um, like I have a few friends in New York who've been who've been playing klezmer at protests asking for a ceasefire, an extension of ceasefire, um, raising money for Palestinian aid with klezmer music events. 
And um, I recently performed or led singing for a, a ceasefire protest here in Boston. I think there there are a lot of young people, um, including young people in the in the klezmer and Yiddish scenes who who see Palestinian rights as really something very connected to to the to the history of Yiddish Yiddish activism. And there's a there's a whole world of of Yiddish activist songs. And over the last few weeks, I've I've helped two friends write songs in Yiddish about about the Palestinian struggle for freedom. That's a cultural thing. And at the same time, I wouldn't say all klezmer musicians are pro-Palestinian or all klezmer musicians are anti-Zionist or anything like that, because it's not it's not like that, (laughs) because it's a diverse group of people. Would you say that your passion and interest in Yiddish evolved and maybe the inception was interfaith focus? Well, my my um, experience with interfaith work really started with my mom's organization, Children at the Well, which is an, an interfaith youth storytelling program. And um, through that, I, I trained in the art of storytelling and, and learned um, to, to perform a, a set of Jewish stories. And certainly that helped develop my connection to Jewish culture and also my performance skills. And so that's something that I carried. And and I actually led work, storytelling workshops as part of my work at Vassar. And my, my time at Vassar very directly um, led to my obsession with Yiddish because I I was I was like curious about Yiddish I'd studied linguistic anthropology in college some and and I was like curious about this language in my family history and I was talking with Rena Blumenthal who was the rabbi at um, Vassar at the time and I said I'm I'm curious about Yiddish I'm interested and she said well there's this this kooky thing that I went to 10 years ago that I think you might like and that's how I ended up going to my first klezmer festival that's how I went to klez camp um, so it was a direct, direct line. And then after that, I was, I was very motivated to continue studying Yiddish and, and learning Yiddish song and working on songwriting. You want to catch us up what you're doing right now uh, in your work? Um, sure. So my gig life currently includes, ready for the full list? <laughs> okay. Okay, so I love I'm it. Teaching, <laughs> I'm teaching Hebrew school twice a week at a reconstructionist synagogue called Dorshet Sedek. I am um, a vocalist for services at a reform temple called Temple Sinai in Brookline. I'm a teaching assistant for YIVO in New York, um, the Jewish Research Research Institute, and. Then my fourth gig area is my music life. And there are some exciting things happening in my music life. I am about to perform with my ensemble Lev Yosin. Um, Lev Yosin means Leviathan in Ashkenazi Hebrew. Um, we're a, a Yiddish song ensemble that's um, been around for a few years. And we just recorded our debut album last year. It's called Lev Yosin's Lullaby. And we released it through Borscht Beat Records, which is a great independent label in New York. And we are about to perform at the Yiddish New York Festival at the end of December. So we're very excited about that. And 
I'll also be teaching a Yiddish songwriting class during that week. And Leviosin's Lullaby is getting some, um, some good critical attention and we're really excited to share it with people. You can um, find it on Bandcamp and, um, and also check out our website and, and find out more about it. One of your gigs is working with children. I think you mentioned kindergartners, third graders. I, I wondered if given the recent surge in anti-Semitism, if the children are asking questions about this. My agenda is positive Jewish community. And if I can slip in some of my pacifism, then that's also great. And I think where I'm where I'm currently at with responding to this war and to all of the anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and all of the, the hateful things that this war has helped promote. Um, Leviosin's music has been described as like a security blanket of Yiddish song. Um, Leviosin's Lullaby isn't a children's album, but some people have said like, oh, I play this for my baby. You know, it's not not um, the most jarring music. It's like pretty gentle. And I think that's good because I think if I can lower everybody's stress level in the room and lower their fear of life and of each other and of the world and everything, even if it's just for like an hour to just like kind of bring everything a little down um, and comfort people just a little bit, then maybe they'll make kinder decisions toward others. Mm, beautiful. So we are approaching the Jewish holiday Hanukkah, which usually occurs in December, but sometimes in, in November, right? <laughs> uh, because the Jewish calendar is lunar based. And I was curious, what does Hanukkah mean to you? Hanukkah means klezmer parties, because this is one of the times of the year when the mainstream Jewish world is like, oh, we need some party music. So, <laughs> so Hanukkah generally means um, some klezmer gigs. And then for my educational work, Hanukkah programs and dancing. Um, it's really, really fun to lead, to lead Yiddish dance, which is basically dance to klezmer music. Um, so often people will complain about like, oh, the Jews were too busy writing Christmas songs to like write good Hanukkah songs, but they're out there. They're just in Yiddish. Bring me a bright tune, bring me the vine, will near all the freilich sein. Tra la 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 la. Hopschwein latkes fleisch und fisch, ohne weiß verdeckten Tisch. Tra la 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 la. Thank you so much, Ada. And so that was Marsha Lazarus uh, talking with singer, songwriter, and klezmer musician Ada Hecko about what it means and doesn't mean to be Jewish in America. Um, we're getting a little warning from the state health department that uh, there's been a big post-Thanksgiving spike uh, in covid um, and believe it or not, they're urging people to get the vaccine, uh, even though about one and a half million New Yorkers have received the latest vaccine. Uh, that is only about 10 percent of the population. 
and the health commissioner is expressing concern that only 27% of all nursing home residents are newly vaccinated. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Mark Dunley. Our engineer was the musically inclined Joan Eason. Uh, we want to thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Marsha Lazarus, Lisa Schomburger, Luna Sturgis. Lots of people walking around the sanctuary uh, having uh, Chris Hedges at 7 o'clock on, on Wednesday night. And you'll be able to check back uh, to our website, mediasanctuary.org, to get uh, the recording at some point. Our program, Hudson Mohawk Magazine, covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We do want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or you can send us an email uh, to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. You can tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary, sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual news stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. Thank you.